Welcome, friends. I am so glad that all of us are here today to worship uh, our Lord and Savior. Uh, and we're starting the season off right by coming to worship the King. And that really is what the season should be all about. Some of you have come today already joyful, overflowing with blessings. Congratulations, Dennis and Debbie, on your grandbaby's birth. Briar Rose, she's got some awesome grandparents on both sides. I know all of them. Others of you may have come here with some heavier hearts and burdens. You know, Christmas time is not always a, a fun time for everyone. But I hope that when we leave today, we all can say we know that there's something that we can be joyful about. Today we continue in the series we're calling The Best Part, and we're thinking about all those elements that have become sort of traditional for us at Christmas time, things that we think about, and we see those things, we think about the season of Christmas. There's probably a lot of things that are significant for you and your family, uh, things that y'all have done, things that are a part of your Christmas experience. One of the things that's become a part of our holiday traditions, I would say, are Christmas parades. How many of you have ever been to a Christmas parade? Anybody ever been to a Christmas parade? You know, the word parade is defined as a public procession, especially one celebrating a special day or event and including marching bands and floats. That, that's according to Oxford Dictionary. Now, I grew up uh, watching these famous parades on TV. Any of y'all ever watch those on the holidays? You see them on TV. Uh, and they seem sort of magical, you know, when you're watching them, the bands marching and playing the, the huge floats that are so colorful. And, and, you know, it's just a fun time with the family. New Year's Day parades, Thanksgiving Day parades have become again a part of the holiday experience. But one of the favorites was put on by Disney, if you've traveled to any of the Disney theme parks, how many of you have traveled to a Disney theme park? Anybody? So at the end of the evening, what happens? There's usually a parade, fireworks, and they can have parades where the, the characters are there. When, when we took the girls years ago, they were younger, and that was one of the highlights for us. But there's a special Disney Parks Christmas Day parade which is really a made-for-television event, which it's probably more about, you know, getting people to come to Disney and spend money than anything. But, of course, they, too, would have all their characters in the parade. They would highlight some of their theme parks. It used to be held on Christmas Day. Now they do it a month ahead, which I don't know why they still call it the Christmas Day Parade. But we have some local parades, too, that we can take our families out to attend. Uh, the Greenville J.C.'s Christmas Parade. Was that yesterday? Yeah, yeah okay. Uh, the theme, I understand, was frozen. How, how warm was it yesterday? 69 degrees out there? I don't know. How many of you have taken your children to the Aiden Christmas Parade? Anybody been over there? Okay. Uh, I think it's called the Christmas Parade of Lights. I think that was this past Thursday. Um, Christmas Town in Aiden is becoming a bigger thing. This coming Saturday, Farmville and Winterville will host their Christmas parades. 
Now, some of you that are maybe a little more cultured may want to head over to the metropolis of Beargrass for their parade on Saturday as well. You know, that's where, that's where Christie comes from, you know, so um, uh, we love taking our families to these parades and watching them. Uh, some of you, may, you know, may have been a part of parade as a member of a marching band or even uh, on a float. Any of you ever taken part in a parade? Raise your hand if you... Were you in the band? Anybody in the band? Anybody on a float? Okay, yeah. Uh, they're just fun times for the family. Now, you may not know this or may have never thought about it this way, but the original Christmas story actually does have a parade of sorts. It's a caravan of travelers, more than travelers, of worshipers. And they came not for the fun of it, but for the joy of it. Now, the problem was that the trip was fraught with danger. You know, long journeys in those days could often be dangerous. But going to a foreign land to find a baby king and worship him when another king is already sitting on the throne? Now, I would say that sort of ramps up the danger meter, right? It can be dangerous to worship King Jesus, even today. But the joy of knowing him outweighs the danger. You know, as we continue in this series, the best part, we're reminded of the best part of the best parade ever. And of course, the wise men did not, to our knowledge, have a marching band or floats. They did have camels and donkeys, I'm sure. Any caravan traveling in that day would have been a sort of, it wouldn't have just been a few guys walking somewhere. It would have been full of different things. But it certainly was a public procession celebrating a special event. And as we are reminded of that parade, we are reminded that we as followers of Christ are also a part of another parade, if you will, a triumphal procession. And while this is not always fun, it does bring us joy. So today, the question is, what would you do to proclaim your worship of Jesus the King? What journey would you make? What risks would you take? What gifts would you bring? As for the Magi or the wise men, we, we have the answers to those questions. First of all, what journey would you make to worship Him? As we turn over to Matthew chapter 2, this is where we are first introduced to these Magi or wise men. And we look in verse 1, and we begin reading, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, <clears throat> these Magi or wise men were a cast of the highest ranking political and religious advisors of the Medo-Persian Empire. According to Mark Moore, they were often instrumental in predicting and establishing 
new kingships. Now, our word magic comes from the word for magi. But they were not mystical or mysterious people. They were actually learned men. They studied astrology, astronomy, medicine, math, uh, even the natural sciences as they understood them. It's very possible that as the Jewish people were sent in the Babylon as captives, they would have taken some of their sacred literature. And it's very possible that that literature and from the stars that they studied, these magi concluded that something major was about to happen. Obviously, they saw some kind of event in the stars which led them to believe that a new king of the Jews was coming. Now, astronomers, more recently, have attempted to figure out what it was that they saw. And so they have used computer-generated models to determine the alignment of the stars, which would have been visible for these men around the time of 6 B.C. And according to those models, there was an alignment of Jupiter and Saturn in the constellation of Pisces about 6 B.C. And while that would happen once every 800 years, it took place three times around the time of Jesus' birth. One in May, which is when most theologians believe Jesus was born. Then in October... And finally, in December. A year later, the planet Mars joined the other planets in alignment. Now, these may be some very dramatic findings, but they still don't account for the fact that the Scripture says that they followed a star that eventually rested over the place where Jesus was living. Now, these men would have traveled over 900 miles. To reach Jesus. It's impossible to know exactly how long it took them from the beginning of their journey to when they reached Jesus, but based on what they shared with Herod's people, it could have taken as long as two years to travel, but it's also possible that they first saw the star two years earlier, and then they're trying to figure out what that star was all about, and they started studying And at some point, they would have to make travel arrangements and finally make the journey. Now, normally, it might take about four months to make a journey by caravan in ancient days. And so just think about it. They studied the stars. They probably studied some Old Testament scriptures or Jewish sacred writings. Who knows what God did to communicate with them about this plan that God had, but they came to a belief that a a once-in-a-lifetime event is about to occur, and they weren't going to miss it. Have you ever had an event that was so exciting, and you're thinking, I have got to be there, right? Anybody ever done that? And you make plans, and you travel. So they went to all that expense, all that effort, all that time and energy to travel to a land where most Babylonians would have considered inferior. Now, why would they do that? Because they wanted to worship a baby king. And this begs the question for us. 
How far would you go to worship Jesus? Now let's be honest, worshiping Jesus isn't popular today. Now maybe for you and your family it is. But as you look around the culture, you discover that more and more people are opting out of worshiping Jesus. According to the website Statista, 22% of Americans attend church on a weekly basis. 22%. Compare that to 25% who seldom attend, which would be once or twice within a six-week uh, period, and 31% who never attend. Actually, the 25 would be like Easter and Christmas, right? If, if I were to ask the question, how far would you go to worship Jesus, most Americans would say, I wouldn't even go around the block. At the turn of the century, about 70% of Americans said they belonged to a church or synagogue or mosque. In 2020, that number was down to 47%. We know that during COVID, we saw a dramatic decline as well. In 2019, 34% of Americans attended a religious service at least once or twice a month. In 2020, that number fell to 31%, and last year it fell to 28%. Today, more than 25% of former churchgoers are still missing. And of course, all this has an effect upon the church in many different ways. Many have stopped giving to their churches or cut back on what they're giving to churches. So while charitable giving as a whole is up in America by 5%, it's down in churches. So there's a general moving away from the organized church. And add to that the growing number of young people who are choosing to be atheists. And you have a recipe for dwindling church attendance. So friends, I want to challenge you to view Jesus in the same light as the Magi did. They didn't know that, as far as I know and as far as the Bible tells us, they didn't know that he would be the savior of the world. Now, maybe God did reveal that to them, but there's nothing in the text that says that. They just knew he was going to be the king of the Jews, and they knew that this was a special once-in-a-lifetime event, and they had to see him. Now, you and I know much more about Jesus than they did. We know that he was born of a virgin. We know that he lived a perfect life under the law of God. We know that he gave himself up as a sacrifice for our sins. We know that he was raised on the third day and that one day he'll be coming back to take his followers home. We know that he is the creator of the universe. We know that he is the sustainer of life. His name is Jesus and his title is Christ, the Messiah. And he is worthy of all praise and all glory and all majesty. How far would you go? How far would you journey to worship Him? But not just that. What risks would you take to worship Him? When you think about the risk the Magi took, I mean, there were many. Historians say traveling in the first century would have been very risky. 
You know, you have flash floods, you have wild animals, you have marauding bandits along the way. When you talk about a 900-mile journey, let's say the dangers are multiplied. Think about when we take a 900-mile journey. There's always a danger of something going haywire, the car breaking down, uh, you know, a wreck happening. All kinds of things could happen. But, you know, we travel in vehicles with heat and air, and most of us would have cell service and some semblance of safety inside the vehicle. And we can travel at night because we have headlights, and we can travel 80 miles an hour through the night. So a 900-mile trip would probably take us less than 15 hours of driving time. Not so for the Magi. They would have had to camp out at night. Depending on the terrain, a caravan could travel anywhere from 10 to 25 miles a day. And by that calculation, it would have taken anywhere from 36 to 90 days of travel time. We simply don't know how long it took them. But I would say that the greatest risk wasn't the travel itself. The greatest risk was once they got to their destination. Now, I'm not sure that they understood the political upheaval that their presence would create, but they certainly shook things up. So let's read the narrative in Matthew 2, 3 through 8. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed in all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. You might want to mute this. <coughs> Excuse me. Try to warn you. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. What a jerk. Why were the people disturbed? It says Herod and all the people of Jerusalem were disturbed. Think about it. This King Herod was ready to do anything to keep his crown. As king, he had made many attempts to take, or people had made many attempts to take the throne away from him, either real or imagined. He had killed several of his own sons because he thought, they were trying to get the crown. He had his wife and his mother-in-law murdered because he thought they were plotting against him. At the time the Magi came, it is believed that he was suffering from a mental disorder and his body was covered in ulcers. According to Mark Moore, he was a very sick, paranoid, and savage man at this point in his life. And so... He heard from these magi who had traveled a great distance that a new king of the Jews had been born and everyone is worried. And when the text says that everyone in Jerusalem was troubled by this, it wasn't just that they were troubled 
at the thought of someone else coming and taking the throne, it was probably more that they were troubled about what Herod was going to do. There was a great fear of this man. I mean, if he would murder his own wife and sons, what wouldn't he do? They all knew his reputation. Now, the Old Testament prophets had made clear that it was from Bethlehem that the child of promise would come. This was the last thing Herod would want to hear. Uh, And though he was sick, this guy was still very cunning. He devised this plan to track down the child and kill that child before it could be a threat. First, he asked the Magi when the star appeared. Now, in our text that we read today, it doesn't give us that answer. But we do read the answer a little bit later in the narrative. The answer must have been about two years because, as we would see in the next section, Herod orders that all the two-year-old boys born... Uh, or two-year-olds or under, born in Bethlehem, should be slaughtered. He also tried to convince the Magi that he just wanted to worship the child just like them. Would they please come back and tell him where the child was so he could do that? Of course, this was a lie from an evil heart. He was deceptive. And he allowed the Magi to continue in their search in the hopes that they would come back and bring him Uh, some definitive location for Jesus. But later, when he learned that they had left to return to their home without coming back to him, he was furious. And this is when he gave the order to kill those little baby boys. And getting one over on a mad and jealous king is a dangerous proposition. But those magi were willing to take risks to worship the king. I wonder about us. What risks would we take to worship Jesus? If someone was threatening us, would we still worship Jesus? You know, there are places in the world where worshiping Jesus is a very dangerous proposition. We know that communist countries have persecuted churches and Christians. We know that uh, Muslim countries and Hindu countries have done so. Recently, we've gotten word that our friends in Central India Christian Mission have been under a constant persecution that has just ramped up. Uh, Now, for years, we have been aware that the Hindu extremists in India want to stamp out all Christianity and also Islam because they believe that Hinduism is the religion of the Indians. Our friend, Dr. Rajay Lal and his team, have done tremendous work in India. Not only have they shared the gospel with people, and every Sunday uh, over 750,000 people are worshiping Jesus because of their work. But their benevolent work, their medical support for their community has been tremendous. In fact, during COVID, when uh, they ran out of oxygen, through CICM and their partner churches like us, we were able to build an oxygen plant in Demo that the government couldn't even build. And, and so they were able to help people. And not only that, but what, whatever somebody comes who is poor and can't afford the medical care, it is offered for free. 
And it doesn't matter whether they're Christian or Hindu or Muslim. If they're in need, they help. So much so that they were publicly recognized for their efforts in the community. But that recognition came at a cost. You see, the spotlight was now turned on them, and the Hindu extremists were inspired to come after them. They don't, again, they don't want Christians getting credit for anything, and so they brought many lawsuits and charges against Brother Ajay and also some other co-defendants. Um, they have a civil suit and a criminal suit that has been brought against them. The government confiscated his passport and his cell phone. And I understand that even other family members had their cell phones taken. If found guilty, Brother Ajay and several others would be thrown in prison for years. Now, what is the crime that they're accused of? The biggest one is that the Hindus claim that because they offer these services for free, that that is somehow an inducement to force people to become Christians. And so they're trying to say that they are forcing converts. These extremists think the only way someone would leave the Hindu faith is if they were offered a bribe or threatened. Now, this past week, they had a hearing, which was a bail hearing, to see if they would have to be put in jail before the trial came to be. CICM lawyers went to that courtroom, and there were 51 lawyers for the Hindus. This was a bail hearing, and the court gave the defendants bail, which was a victory, and we were so happy to hear this. There's still a trial looming on the horizon, but something happened 24 hours after that bail hearing. Someone went out to the property of CICM and they slaughtered four cows. If you know anything about Hinduism, you know that they worship cows. And so the, the community believes that one of the Christians slaughtered these cows. Now I can tell you, I've been there many times and they would never do that because they know the consequences of it but there is mob rule. And so when the people found these slaughtered cows, the mobs began to form. My brother Ajay and Hindu and their whole family have had to flee for their lives. We don't know where they are. They're in some undisclosed location. And CICM in America is trying to get their family back here but the family will not leave if Ajay isn't with them. So I ask you to pray. I mean pray like you never prayed because our friends are in trouble. They've done nothing wrong. They are simply serving and worshiping Jesus. And they know the risks. The persecutions of Christians is really a hatred of Jesus. And it is hard to believe that people would hate Jesus, but it's true. And if you want to worship him, you may be put at risk as well. But I think of the reasons and the excuses we make.
for not worshiping Jesus? I mean, we come up with a lot. I just want to sleep in. You know, we have a kid's game today. Church people are so judgmental. I'm, I'm just not getting fed. Ten years ago, somebody said something that hurt my feelings. Churches just want my money. The leaders made a decision I didn't like. You know, we make all these excuses. But the one thing that is missing in all of those excuses is that we're more focused on these things that we don't like than we are on Jesus. I would bet the Magi could have come up with tons of excuses. But their focus was on Jesus. It didn't matter what the risk was. It didn't matter how inconvenient it was. It didn't matter how far it was. It didn't matter how hard it was. They were determined to worship. And let me encourage you to have the same heart of worship. Our story ends with gifts being presented to the baby Jesus. And this begs a question. What gifts would you bring to worship Him? For the secular world... Christmas has become all about gifts, right? <laughs> what am I going to get this Christmas? As children, that's our, our main focus. You know, What's in that box under that tree? Ooh, there's some boxes. Ooh, what, what are we going to get? Can I open one early? You know? <clears throat> and, and so we sort of train our kids to adopt that attitude. Um, I'm not saying that's all bad. But what if we created the opposite in our children? What if we created the anticipation of giving and not receiving. If anything, the Magi came bearing gifts to give. They didn't come expecting to receive anything. They came to worship a king. So let's read verses 9 through 12. And after they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. And then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. So notice that the family, uh, the the Mary, Joseph, and Jesus family are no longer in a stable. They are living in a house. Now, we have no, no idea how much time had passed between the birth of Jesus and the time the Magi got there. But they didn't make it in time to be in the manger scene for Christmas, okay? But they saw the child and his mother and what did they do? They bowed down and they worshipped him. And I want you to get this picture in your mind. Here are these wealthy, intelligent, well-educated and influential men. And they're bowing down to what would be a peasant child. He wasn't in a palace. He wasn't considered royalty. Joseph was a carpenter. But they recognized something about this child. And rather than being disappointed, they were overjoyed. God had led them to a once-in-a-lifetime event. Not only did they worship, but they gave him gifts. 
And I think that too is a part of their worship. These gifts were of great value in the land from which they came. They were gifts fit for a king. And although the Bible doesn't speak to the significance of each gift, some have made educated guesses to their significance. Gold uh, uh, could be a symbol of his kingship on earth. Myrrh could be used as an embalming oil signifying his future death and uh, the fact that he's Savior. Frankincense, which was an incense, could symbolize his deity or his role as a priest. But no matter, each of these gifts were meant to honor a king. And as we think about their gifts and the value, the, the very valuable treasures, not to mention the time and the effort they put into their journey or the risk that they took in finding Jesus, we have to recognize that they valued worshiping Jesus above all else. And the best part of the entire experience was when they finally saw Jesus. Friends, what gifts are you offering to King Jesus? What gifts do you have that are worthy of a king? What gifts or gift could you bring before the Savior of the world, the Savior of your soul? Maybe you don't have the wealth of the Magi, but you do have things to offer Jesus. You have your time. I mean, they took significant time to find Jesus so that they could worship him. Is Jesus worthy of your time? They had energy. They expended a lot of energy and effort in finding Jesus. Is Jesus worthy of your energy and your effort? But they had devotion too. We can call it worship, but devotion fits as well. They were so devoted, <coughs> even an evil king <coughs> could not prevent them from seeing Jesus. When we're devoted to Jesus like that, what we're doing is we're giving him the gift of ourselves, of our heart, of our love. And that is what he wants more than anything. He wants our hearts. He wants our love. He wants our devotion. Maybe you didn't know this, but in a way, as a follower of Christ, you are a part of a parade of believers. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 2.14, Thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of Him everywhere. In ancient Rome, when an a Roman army had a great victory. They would return back to Rome and they would have a victory parade. And in the case of the Roman victory parade, the, the state officials would come in first leading the parade. The trumpeters would follow and then the spoils of the battle would come in. The poor captives would be marched through the streets. The leaders and generals and princes of the of the captured enemy would be marched in chains just before being thrown into prison or being executed. A band would follow and then the priests with their sweet-smelling incense. And finally, the general himself, who led the army, would ride in on his chariot. 
And immediately behind the general would be his family, who would be honored along with him. And then the army, wearing their decorations and shouting the cry of triumph. The crowds would line the streets and shout and scream their approval, cheering on their army and their general and their emperor. Paul wrote that God himself leads those who are captive to Christ. Paul, in this case, would be like one of those priestly incense bearers in the procession of the conquered. The knowledge of Christ is the sweet-smelling aroma like the priest's incense. And we are a part of that victory parade of which Paul is speaking. Those of us who have found Jesus, who have searched for Him and worshipped Him, we are a part of that triumphal celebration. And at the end of that celebration, we too will see Jesus face to face. And friends, that is the best part of the best parade ever. So let's be honest. It's taken some here longer than others. Some of you have journeyed through harsher territory to find Jesus than others of us. Maybe you've struggled through an addiction. Possibly you've been through an abusive situation. It could be that your journey was through some difficult and dangerous territory. But you came to find Jesus and you were overjoyed because your life has been saved and your life is now full of blessing. Others may not have taken that same road, but we all came to the same place. We found a king, and his name is Jesus, and he is worthy of our praise and worship. What would you do to proclaim your worship of Jesus the king? How far would you travel? What risks would you take What gifts would you bring? Father, we thank you for Jesus, our King. Thank you for the example of these magi who who journeyed far and risked much to offer their gifts to Jesus. And I pray, Father, that we would have the same heart of worship, that we would understand that the best part of, of life itself, not just this season, But the best part is that we will see Jesus face to face. Lead us in this Christmas season and beyond to teach others what the true reason for the season and life is all about. We love you, Father. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.